This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today are Dwight McInvale, who is director of the Georgetown County Library, and South Carolina's most famous artist, Jonathan Green. And we're here to talk about a new book that Dwight was involved with, entitled Alice, Alice Ravenel U.G. Smith, Charleston Renaissance Artist. So with that introduction, gentlemen, welcome to the journal. Thank you. Thank you so much, Walter. Pleasure to be here today. Dwight, why don't you talk about how this book came about? Because I understood you were working on it, and it was a 600-page manuscript. It uh, currently is four pounds. It would have been 12 pounds if I had my way. But thank goodness uh, I had two wonderful co-authors, uh, Ann Tinker and Caroline Palmer, Alice Smith's uh, great niece and great great niece who set me right who helped to edit the book considerably and who added uh, some essential information at the beginning of the book so glad for their help and then also had so many people to take a look at it in the earlier stages jonathan was one of those and uh, he and i we worked a lot on the low country rice culture project and we ha- we had some excellent scholars And uh, they served as a sounding board. Sometimes we agreed, sometimes we didn't, but it was a very safe environment in which to express a a wide variety of views. Of course, Middleton Place has been a wonderful resource uh, for information and and also has uh, been the backer of this book. We, of course, have had a terrific relationship with Evening Post Books of Charleston, the publisher of the book, and then, of course, Martha Severins. We have stood on Martha's shoulders. She yes. is, of course, a preeminent scholar of all things artistic in South Carolina. And especially the Renaissance. Especially the Renaissance, and especially Alice Ravenel, U.G. Smith. And, uh, and then, of course, we've had um, both uh, encouragement and financial backing from Dr. Lewis Wright and his wife, Patricia. And we appreciate their support and others. Okay. All right. Dwight and Jonathan, how did you get involved with the project? I got involved with the project because of Dwight. (laughs) (laughs) Dwight introduced the concept and some of the writings to me during our Low Country Rice Culture Festival in Charleston. Of course, for me, uh, the works of Alice Ravenel and Hugh Smith has always been a part of my visual memory as, as going back probably to high school because of the types of work that she did that showed a clear insight to the life on plantations and in downtown Charleston. And when I went to the Art Institute of Chicago, I learned more about many of the Renaissance periods throughout America. And my fascination with uh, the works of, uh, I have to call her Miss Smith, difficult to call her Alice, uh, is that she has canvassed so much of the importance, the essence of history that most people have not covered. And that's not only out on the plantation sites, but also in the city. So it's one of the earliest reflections of uh, my people that I could see in art and painted in in such a, um, a highly respectable manner, considering the time and the event that was done. I'm glad you mentioned that because not all of the artists in the Renaissance displayed that empathy and that understanding, and some of it, particularly the later, as it became more touristy, devolved into caricature. Caricature art is, um, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a part of most of the history of artists, especially if you move into the realm of illustration. And, uh, but I always say that the caricature speaks to what little the artist knows of a people. And uh, uh, Mrs. Smith, not only, I mean, the lady spent her entire life around people of color, uh, I remember uh, reading about, uh, I think it was a earthquake or a storm in Charleston where she slept outside with her parents on a mattress with the housemaid. Uh, we have all kinds of relationships like that throughout the Southeast. But unfortunately, when the arts is not supported as much in our school systems, 
we don't have the artists and the people in the arts world, dance, theater, talking about our connectiveness. Uh, we have more people talking about our divisions, but we don't have as many people talking about the connectiveness. And the works of uh, uh, Alice Rabneil, Hugh Smith, certainly illustrates the connectiveness of people during that time period. That's a fascinating comment. It's, it's one that my friend, the late Charles Joyner, author of Down by the Riverside, and also, more importantly, Shared Traditions, would would say, uh, in South Carolina, if you look at South Carolina history and culture, there is not white or black. It is our, because everything we've done in this state, the influence on one another's cultures, uh, has produced current South Carolina culture, whether people want to admit it or not. Absolutely. And that's where Dwight and I and Tracy, that's, that's where we're so compatible, is that we can we can see so many of the samenesses of a people. And I think uh, for the artist, it is our single most important role is to show some semblance of truth and respect, accountability, the humanity of people, yes. if you will. And I have tremendous respect for her work from its perspective of humanity. Jonathan, when you mentioned Tracy, you're talking about Tracy Todd, who's yes, the, Tracy Todd from Middleton Place. He's the CEO, at, the new, the new Middleton, CEO of Middleton, Middleton Place. Place. And actually, he very nicely drove you gentlemen up here to Columbia. So he we did, could. and he bought me coffee. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dwight, for our listeners who might not be as quite involved in South Carolina history and genealogy, what is the connection of somebody named Smith with Middleton Place? Alice was actually a descendant of the Middletons. The families were very much intertwined. Um, when you look on a map of the early wall city of Charleston, you will actually see a Smith K um, where ships were docked, and this would be, I guess, in the 1600s. There should have been a Middleton K as well. I haven't found one yet, but the families were so closely interrelated. Um, she would often visit Middleton Place, and in fact, she described it as a, as a, as a jewel thrown down in the green woods. And so as a child, before there was any of the development that there is today, she and her father would walk from 69 Church Street south of Broad all the way up the peninsula and all the way to Middleton Place. Now, I think that's 15 miles, and they did it there and back on sandy roads and, of course, later she loved to ride a bicycle as well. But in any case, uh, she frequently visited that. And when my, my dad and mother came into her life in the, uh, in the 1940s, one of the first places that she took them was Middleton Place. And my father loved to take photographs. And so when, when I, after my father's death at his early age of 56 in the 1970s, I went to a cabin in the woods near my grandparents' house, and I discovered hundreds of photographs and also over 400 letters that she had written to my parents uh, during the war years and, uh, and during the time that they, well, Dad owned the pink house on Chalmers Street, but Alice Smith worked with him uh, in helping the business to thrive. And then also, when he went back into the Navy at the onset of the Korean War, she actually managed the pink house, and she established a studio there, which was a, a teaching studio. Uh, she always produced her art uh, during that period of time in the uh, third floor of her house at 69 Church Street, where she lived with her sister Caroline. And she would, would paint her watercolors um, on this large table in the room. And it was in the center of the room, and, and uh, there wasn't much more in the room except for some bookcases. And she would move around the panel on which she had taped down the watercolor paper, and she would pick it up, and, and she would, of course, apply paint with her brush, but sometimes she would let the water flow. She could produce up to three watercolors, unbelievably, in a morning. Uh, she would have planned these watercolors in advance, and, and unlike oil that Jonathan uses, where you essentially build up 
layers in a very meticulous way. She was dealing with watercolor, which is such a, 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 a medium that requires instant work, quick speed. And, and uh, so she was able to, 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 to do that and to create these, these masterpieces. Jonathan, you might describe watercolor. Have you ever done watercolor? I have. I have worked on just about every medium in terms of painting, drawing, printmaking. Well, one of the things that's discussed in the book is the evolution of her painting medium. Uh, like some early 20th century Americans, she went in for Japanese mm-hmm. woodcuts. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I think uh, Anna Hayward Taylor may be one of the best examples of, of that, uh, a Columbia native, but who was also part of the Charleston Renaissance. And just a reminder, the Renaissance, we're talking about the period between World War One and World War Two, when art, literature, poetry, drama, everything flourished in Charleston, uh, much to the surprise of the rest of the world. It didn't just happen in Mississippi with William Faulkner. <laughs> so, uh, you work in oils now, right, mostly, Jonathan? Yes, I do. Watercolor, working in watercolor is unforgiving. So whatever mistakes you make, it's over. What I love about uh, just having been privy to the early life of an artist is that you find that it pretty much mimics your own life. Uh, Mrs. Smith was a very active person in her community. Uh, She painted what she knew. Uh, That was one of the first things I learned when I started traveling abroad. Uh, Many of the artists across Europe would always say to me as a young artist, young man, paint what you know. And once you understand the relevance of painting what you know, then, of course, your palette is endless. My palette has been endless ever since I started painting. If anything, I need to decide what not to paint rather than what to paint. But as an artist, it takes constant work. You know, the digits are muscles, and if you don't use them, you lose them, which is very true. I've been paralyzed in both arms from tendonitis issues and have regained the strength in my arms through therapy. So the work that Alice has done and the number of works that she has done for a woman at that time is just next to impossible feat. Not to mention her traveling out into the wilderness, out onto the plantations, uh, and she was a fabulous illustrator of botany. And to understand the waters in the ponds and in the in the marsh fields and, uh, and understanding the, the trees and how the trees grow and the light system. It takes hours upon hours of being out in a place and understanding it for her. Gentlemen, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal. And I'm speaking with Jonathan Green and Dwight McInvale about Alice Ravenel, U.G. Smith, the artist, and about South Carolina culture. Do we have any idea how many works she created? There was a book that came out in uh, 1956 in honor of her 80th birthday. And I don't know how they got her inventory of records, but she was a meticulous keeper of records. They produced quite a list, but they recognized that it was incomplete. And what's so wonderful is almost every week now people are contacting me and uh, saying, Oh, I have this. This is by Alice Smith, and I'm just stunned because you can tell that it is, and it's a it's a new image that I've never seen before. But to follow up on what Jonathan was saying, she did know her own country. She was intrepid. She waded through marshes, through swamps. In fact, she she had an what she called her alligator stick to probe <laughs> the the flooring of the the swamp to see whether or not there was an alligator hole there. She didn't want to twist her ankle. Mm -hmm. She uh, knew how to deal with snakes, and she discussed matters of if she did get bitten by a snake, what would one do? She uh, went out into uh, boats, into the marshlands, into the old rice fields. She was an early adopter of a new technology for her day, and that was taking photographs. And she and her social set, they invested in these handheld devices, and Alice and her, her cohort, they documented very carefully in photographs the last days of rice planting, 
I found these photographs that she had taken at the Gibbs after I was coming back from the West Coast. You know, I was working on helping the the Digital Public Library of America get established. I was on their starting steering committee. And uh, I remember reading uh, Chaz Joyner's uh, introduction to a woman rice planter and then looking carefully at the illustrations and, and enjoying that book. I'd never really read it. And then I went to the Gibbs Museum that following weekend and I opened up this folder of photographs and there they were, <laughs> the photographs that she had used for a woman rice planter and then also substantially for a Carolina rice plantation in the 50s. And, uh, that's the book she did with Herbert Rapnell South. Yes, yes. She, she, she did a woman rice planter in about 1913, I want to say, mm-hmm. and then a Carolina rice plantation in the 50s in 1936. Well, in your book, you have paired photographs with her images. How many photographs are there are about in that, that Gibbs collection? Because a lot of her material is at the Historical Society, is it not? They have some photographs that she also took there. You're correct. And uh, the, uh, the Mill and Barn, which was a, a painting that she did for Carolina Rice Plantation in the 50s, she used at least three photographs to create sort of a, a watercolor montage. I think she may have used a fourth as well. And at least one of those of the actual mill itself is at the uh, South Carolina Historical Society. And, uh, but the others are in the Gibbs. And, and how many photos that she used? That's a really good question. I don't think all of them have been found yet. I'd say maybe what I saw somewhere in the range of 20 to 40 photographs that I think she used in those two works. And I think uh, about 30% of the watercolors in a Carolina rice plantation in the 50s are at least partially based on photographs, an even higher percentage, perhaps, of a, of a woman rice planter. But not only did she use photographs, as Jonathan has said, she was out in the field, and she, she, she went out in the field in the, in the good old days when one went out with a buggy, you know, with a horse, horse-driven, and you didn't have the, uh, the bridges that we have today. You would get on a ferry and be pulled across the, the, Take the great lunch, rivers. Go to the bathroom. It was, yes, yes. was not an easy lifestyle. Yeah. And I think another important part to add to that, to the life of any great artist, are the people. Mm-hmm. The people that are supportive of the artist, from people cooking your meals, people helping clean the house. And Alice had her sister, and she had uh, African-Americans, uh, one gentleman that was with her constantly, driving her about, taking her places. Uh, the other important part is that m- most of us as artists, rarely, rarely are we successful in our own lifetime in our hometowns. And a a huge part, I think Dwight would agree, of Alice's success was tourism. Uh, it was the tourism market that 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 sustained her as an artist. Uh, she never married. She would have married a cousin, I think, if, if you know. But, uh, but he was Ill. stricken with arthritis, yeah. so uh, that became very problematic. But the life the life of an artist is a is a is it's a lone life, not a lonely life by any stretch of the imagination, but we spend most of our time alone. And our time alone is spent studying, rehearsing uh, what we're going to do. Uh, it involves a lot of reading. So as you know, Alice read a lot. She wrote a lot. It takes all of those disciplines, I think, to make – that's what makes great art okay. from an artist. Right. Now, let's talk about her her artistic training. Uh, she did have some, but it's not what today an artist, a young artist like Jonathan, you went to the Chicago Art Institute, you traveled in Europe, uh, all that kind of thing. She did have some formal training, but she didn't go to the Boston Museum of Fine Arts to study or anything like that. That's correct. She uh, never was able to study at, at a university. The Smiths were financially strapped when she came on the scene. Uh, when they lived at 69 Church Street, her grandmother bought it, and it had been heavily damaged by the, uh, the Civil War activities in Charleston. The family had 16 family members living in the house when she was first there as a, as a young child. Of course, it is a large house, three stories, about 8,000 square feet, so there was room. But even so, the money that was available was to go for the education of the men of the family. 
And so her brother got a fine education, and he repaid the family by going to New York, becoming a highly successful lawyer there and helping to sustain the life of the family in Charleston throughout his his long life. He was the older brother, but he outlived Alice by a, a good number of years. But Alice received more training than has been given credit to her in the past. She studied at the Carolina Arts Institute School in Charleston with a superb French teacher, Lucy Louise Ferre. And Ferre was trained in in France. And if you trace her lineage all the way back, you go to David, the classic uh, French artist. Very realistic. Very, very realistic. And she uh, trained Alice for seven years in all levels of art. And for the last several years, she worked uh, closely with Alice on oils and watercolors. But she produced very tight images, as you say, um, very realistic. And Alice then, through her lifetime, gradually moved into producing large, flowing images. And more and more during Alice's work, she moved into abstraction. And so, for example, in, in the sketchbooks that she did when she went into the countryside, she would look at the, the agricultural workers, and she would very quickly, with a, a, a great deal of speed, essentially il- illustrate what they were doing. And in one sketchbook, sketchbook number one from Wapula Plantation, where she learned so, so very much on, on the Cooper River, she uh, sketched a man milling rice, an African-American rice grower milling rice 50 times. And so it was almost like a, a machine gun approach to sketching. But she did so in a very, a very Japanese style with, with a brush that moves so like lightning. She, she was so intensive. She and Jonathan are very much alike. Whereas Alice may have had to depend upon the tourist market to help put bread on the table. Jonathan is internationally famous. He has... Thanks to tourism. Well, yes. Tourism in Naples, Florida helped out (laughs) tremendously. (laughs) Um, There's an interest... One interesting... When you talked about the early... Her early art classes and her teacher, you had a photograph, illustration of Malaise the Gleaner. Okay. My kindergarten in Mobile, we had to learn all sorts of cultural things. And there were two Malay paintings, the Angelus and the Gleaners, that the teacher would say this, explain them all, and then later on in the week she'd hold it up. What is this? You know, our introduction to art. But that kind of representation, you know, realistic art, it's a scene that Alice would paint totally different. Yes. I, I think it's very important to mention in reference to Alice Ravenel Hugh Smith, Charleston having been the wealthiest city for over 100 years because of rice, because of West African labor force. That's huge. With Charleston being the wealthiest city for over 100 years, Charleston was a sort of like a mecca for artists, not only painters, dancers, writers, all of those people. So Alice had the information of an earlier history of the vibrancy of a Charleston. And with so many people coming through the city of Charleston of great note Mm -hmm. from all over the world, uh, artists, all of these people, uh, she had access to a lot of people because of her communal connection. She was very tied to the community. Not only was she tied to the Gibbs Museum and, you know, being very responsible for that, uh, later years in the Gills, but also the Charleston Museum. Mm-hmm. So this woman was very, very active. Alice and the director of the Charleston Museum, those two women, uh, there was an exhibition on religious art, and somehow they felt it was very important for the religious uh, or for the African-American uh, to see this collection. And they were able to get 2,000 African-Americans to see an exhibition, mm-hmm. something we can hardly do today. <laughs> so she was ingenious in, in not only being a painter, she was ingenious as a person, a humanitarian. She was very giving to uh, the community and also very giving to the people that worked for her. What was fascinating also about uh, a person like uh, like like the great Alice Ravenel, Huji Smith, is that she 
believed so strongly in the visual presence of African-American people throughout the city of Charleston on the plantation sites. Throughout America, uh, rarely do you find an artist that giving of another culture and expressing them in a genuine way. Now, some people say that, well, there were African-Americans, you know, in other lines of work businesses. Well, she wasn't associated with those African-Americans. But for the ones that she was associated with, uh, I think she did a, a great import, importance to our history and understanding the culture of rice, the culture of plantations and how the plantations operated. And because of her, we have many, many people in the tourism category that can come to the South and through her art, find new meanings to the South. Yeah, that's very true. And you, you mentioned the exhibit that Laurel Rag, Rag, who was director of the Charleston Museum, wanted to do an exhibit actually at the encouragement of the mayor of an African-American artist who was working at the same time as the Charleston Renaissance. Yes. Halston. Yes. William Edmund Halston. And the white community did not want that exhibit to take place. Well, I would think a part of that at the time, you know, we were uh, African-American. I almost want to say Africans because we were really not African-Americans until much later, the Voting Rights Act. But anyway, uh, it is very difficult for most white people at that period in time, I would imagine, to look at the work of a very talented, gifted, and financially successful African-American artist. It's a very difficult thing to do. I mean, most African-Americans never even saw their own image in a, in a work of art, let alone to know of an artist. And so this gentleman, who's from a very prominent uh, mortuary family here in Charleston, I knew his uh, grandniece Edwina, he could not make a living in Charleston. And there were certainly enough black people, too, allow him to make a living, but he just couldn't because people are not supporting arts. And the people that bought Alice's work, I want to really make this note again, most of those people were tourism. I would say 98% of them were tourism. Very little works of an artist remains in the hands of family and friends. Dwight, earlier Jonathan mentioned the Pink House, which was operated, owned by your dad. Tell us how the McInvales got connected with Alice. Well, the McInvales were not related to Alice Smith and were not even in Alice's social set, but World War II happened, and there was a real shortage of housing in the city. And my father uh, came from, he was from Conway, but he had been uh, trained as a naval officer in New York, and he and his friend came to Charleston. His friend was a fiancé of one of Alice's relatives. And Dad and the friend, they were invited to dinner. He read poetry to Alice. Alice was a poet as well. She liked his work. Then the Merchant Marine took over the place that my dad lived. And unbeknownst to him, Alice and her sister sent uh, Manny Sass, their chauffeur and longtime friend of Alice, a true supporter, Manny Sass came to the uh, place where Dad was staying on the battery and packed up all, his, uh, all of his belongings and moved to them without him even knowing it. Then when my dad met my mother and they uh, became engaged, then uh, my father and my, my mother uh, came into Alice's social circle as well. And when my dad, uh, and she not only did this for my father, she did this for a goodly number of servicemen she actually put bedding in her upstairs drawing room, which was a large room used for dancing and entertainment back in the 18th century when, when the house was initially built. So there was room. Again, remember, 8,000 square feet and only two older ladies living there when she uh, invited the troops in. But with my dad, it, it was different. When he went to war, she sent him uh, small watercolors and also the letters, over 400 letters, and these were long. These were six pages in length on average, and she talked about creativity. She talked about her passion for art and so forth, and only a, a few of those letters are in the book. 
All right. So after the war, though, he comes back to Charleston. He gets out of the Navy, right? That's correct. And that's when he purchases the pink house. That's correct. And then just a few years later, Korea comes along and he's out. So Alice is really not just putting her art there. She's she's running the shop. Yes, that's correct. And and uh, my father and mother, they, they owned the pink house from 1946 until 1956. Didn't Elizabeth and Neil Verner then purchase, yes, another Charleston Renaissance artist purchased the Pink House, which was her shop. So it remained an art shop. Several hands of artists yes. over the years. Yes. Your father had had this business connection, but obviously there was a personal connection that continued with the family even past his death. That's correct. My, my, my father uh, suffered from a, a chronic condition and uh, was not able to to, to work at, at, when he was in his late 30s and a very early age for someone not to be able to work. And, and Alice recognized that the family would need help. And uh, okay. so I'll, I'll repeat this now. Okay. Okay, if I may. I got a little choked up. Okay. So, That's okay. So, Just take a minute. Take a minute. And also, we need to let our audience know how closely Alice worked with Dwight's mother as well. They had a long-term relationship where Dwight's mother uh, was taking art lessons from Alice. So it, it, it gives you a much larger scope of whom this woman was and the fact that she created so many works. She made it accessible for so many people around this country and internationally, I would imagine, as well, because that's, those were people that were purchasing her work. Uh, but the the wh- where we have failed to know about uh, Alice, as we should know, is in our educational system. Uh, for a woman that is given so much from the perspective of painting and literature, and you know botany and culture of the South, uh, every school child should know about she and Edwin Halston because Edwin Halston was a part of the Charleston Renaissance. Rather than not, he was accepted into it. He was a Charlestonian, and he was painting subject matters of Charleston as well. And I think presently today, the best thing we can do as a society and culture of people would be to put those two artists together to tell a fuller story about Charleston. Now, that would be an incredible exhibit. Let's hope that our friends at the Gibbs are listening. (laughs) White, let's get back to Certainly. the relationship with your your family and Alice. When my father returned from the uh, his military service uh, d- during the Korean War, he actually lost his position in the Navy because he suffered from a bipolar condition. And uh, Alice uh, recognized that life would be difficult. And uh, she left uh, her most of her fortune, based from all of her art, to us to go to college. Huh. She wanted to ensure that the children would be educated mm-hmm. properly, and she considered his parents' children her grandchildren. So she was very endearing to them, and that's why. It's, it's, it's an amazing story because, and so many of us as artists, we do this. We're always out adopting people, finding someone, which I have done my life. I mean, between Richard and I, we have uh, taken over at least six artists, to which they've all become professional artists. Uh, this is the other important life of the, of, the, of the life of the artist that I think is so desperately lacking from our communities for what we give as people. I don't know of anyone professionally that gives as much as artists financially time support i mean we're always giving that's what we do and not to mention what we leave you're talking about in in the greater world you talk about the soft power of america versus the hard you know the military the the things that are done quietly and culturally that sometimes people never know, never know about. Uh, a word of encouragement, a reference, those kind of things uh, can make or break a, a young person's career. Absolutely. You know, I was, I, I really was thinking about that exhibit at the, 
at the Gibbs with Harleston and, and Smith. That well, the, the, what's fascinating about, you know, when people hear about Renaissance periods, there are Renaissance going on all over America. Oh. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm reading The New Negro, uh, works by Dr. Alain Locke, written by uh, Jeffrey Stewart. And there, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Alice knew about all of these many uh, Renaissance periods going on. Alice was a very highly sophisticated when she traveled, she traveled well. I mean, in terms of the place she was in Chicago selling her work, she was at the Art Institute of Chicago, she was in New York. I mean, this, this for a woman, you know, especially in that period when most women needed a man to be with, uh, she was so fortunate and blessed not to have one in that she left us with so many incredible works. And it would have been impossible to do with being a wife, a mother. So she is a tremendous steward in what she has left us behind. And one of the most difficult issues that we're dealing with is this whole notion of family. Whom are we as a family? I mean, we're, you know, we're so divided in terms of color and religion and all of this other stuff. Walter, just to play off of what Jonathan has said as well, she certainly was someone who embraced uh, many different people. From from us Mackinvale kids, who we considered her to be a third grandmother, uh, to 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 the people who worked for her, uh, Manny and Delia and and Susan and others, I mean, such a deep connection. She she was a mentor of so many artists in Charleston, uh, Beth Verner, and she was close friends with throughout her life with Anna Hayward Taylor and taught Antoinette Red and and then as Jonathan mentioned, she also taught my mother. Uh, watercolor lessons, and and during World War II, when there was no gasoline, uh, they exchanged uh, uh, paintings and, and letters by mail, and so that's those lessons are also extraordinary, and they're in the uh, on on deposit uh, on loan to the South Carolina Historical Society. Um, but she loved her family as well, and I do want to underscore that that although she herself did not have family that she had given birth to or a husband. But she had a wonderful relationship with her older brother in New York and and with his wife and and children. And Anne Tinker has such fond memories of coming down and, and being with Alice during the 1950s. Just want to underscore that. And that's been such a wonderful part of this book, having uh, both of our sets of memories mm-hmm. to come together. And it's a very personal book and over 200 pages long. It c- contains hundreds, well, about 200 images. Many of these have never been seen before. It's based on letters that have never been shared, photographs that have never been seen. It is a beautiful book. Gentlemen, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that I'm talking with Dwight McInvale and Jonathan Green about Alice Ravenel, U.G. Smith, one of South Carolina's great artists. Jonathan, when you mentioned Alice Ravenel, U.G. Smith, and her travels, you know, a single woman doing all, going to Chicago, what have you, it just reminded me of the strong women associated with the Charleston Renaissance. Julia Peterkin, Josephine Pinckney, in fact, now people are reevaluating Pinckney's poetry and think she may have been actually the best poet coming out of that period. The South Carolina Poetry Society brought all of the great poets in America to Charleston. They were even asked to take over one issue of the great poetry magazine, and it drove the the so-called artists in the Nashville School crazy because they thought that Charles was just these cute little local color folks and they didn't really think deeply the way they did in in Nashville. But things have changed and people have reevaluated and it's an incredible group of men and women who helped create an image of Charleston. And Jonathan actually, as you know, I've talked about images of Charleston. Jonathan's got a new book coming out this year in 2021. He asked me to write an essay in it. And in that essay, I compare the image created by the Renaissance artists, the Charleston Renaissance artists, not just Ms. Smith, but everybody. And 
his image of the Carolina Low Country, because that image of the Carolina Low Country, it's there, particularly in the tourist market today. The, the, the uh, well, I don't want to say the kitsch. <laughs> Actually, Jonathan thinks I should. <laughs> I think so. Uh, because uh, I'm sorry if you look at the kitsch market, the trinkets, the the good old Southern days is how some, a lot of that image from the 1920s and 30s became accepted by the rest of the world as this was South Carolina. Smith's work is certainly a cut above that, but there were others who traded on that kitsch. My take is that all of the artists of that period, including Smith, were trying to preserve a past. It was an elegy. Mm-hmm. Your work is an ode. You're singing the praise of the Carolina Low Country in a totally different way. So, well, if my grandmother were here, she would say that I was preordained, having been born with the veil. I've always had a very uh, direct sort of chart in terms of my life. When I grew up as a kid, I won my first art contest when I was in fifth grade. It was a countywide art contest, and that art contest told me, based on what I had already known from my grandparents, that I was as good as anyone my age and probably better. And when you get that as a young person, uh, someone defining whom you are or what you could be, then that begins your roadmap. So my roadmap, going to the Art Institute of Chicago as a late student, I was about 22 years old when I went to the Art Institute of Chicago, but for me it was like winning a lottery. And I knew that I, with the little information about African-American artists that I knew about upon entering the Art Institute of Chicago and only seeing the works of uh, my mentor, Jacob Lawrence, on the wall, that's all I had to work from. And it was going to Europe that many of the European artists said, paint what you know. And it took me coming back to South Carolina to take on one of the greatest challenges probably on the planet, and that's painting grass. And I had seen the works of uh, Alice Ravenel, Hughie Smith. I've seen the works of some other artists that have painted grass, and I knew grass was not easy to paint. Now, I studied as a figure, figure uh, I majored in figure drawing and painting. So drawing the figure was very easy for me, but drawing the landscape and putting the figure in the landscape. Uh, that took on unbelievable challenges and continuous work. You can't paint for a while and stop and go on to something else. So I've been painting continuously for 45 years, very much like Alice. So she and I are very much compatible in our life, in our backgrounds, in terms of how we lived. We both lived in large families. But we were supported by a number of people and protected by a number of people. And we had the privilege to work full-time as artists. Well, I think it's wonderful that you came back to South Carolina and you stayed because sometimes people get famous and they go off to live in New York or they become expatriates and uh, uh, you know move to Paris, which a lot of U.S. artists did. Well, every time someone came to my studio from South Carolina or associated with South Carolina in Naples, Florida, the first thing they would say to me is, boy, you should be, what are you doing out here? You need to be in South Carolina. That's all I heard for 25 years. <laughs> so when they, uh, when, when, you know, during the, the market crash in 2006-9, uh, things in terms of tourism, tourism market had just dissolved. And, you know, for an artist, what we do is that of luxury for most people. They don't have, they think they don't have to have it. I think they've learned through COVID they have to have art or else they'll go nuts. But uh, it took that to propel my partner and I to move to Charleston, South Carolina. The major reason for me to move to South Carolina was to be closer to family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and was so many of my family members were leaving, and I just got tired of coming up to funerals. And so I wanted to be here and be closer. And I really came to South Carolina sort of to relax. I had, I had already a full-blown 
career in semi-retirement. I, I did not come here to work, <laughs> but I've been working ever since, and uh, and I cannot ever imagine not having the joy of work around the history and the culture of South Carolina. I think there's just so much to work from, and there's so much healing that the artist can help in as in explaining the greatness of the great Alice Ravenel, Hugh Smith. Well, uh, let's talk about the project briefly that brought you two together, the Rice Culture Project. I'm so glad that Jonathan came back to South Carolina. I did not know him before we were involved in the Low Country Rice Culture Project, but it was his idea. And I am so glad that uh, I sort of crashed the party and came to the Gibbs because I had heard about it and was not invited to the meeting. Oops, sorry. No, no, you didn't even know who, I, who you had focused on institutions in Charleston. And, and when I heard about it, I thought, well, you know, Georgetown was the place where most of the rice was grown, and I'm coming down. Major part of it. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And, and, but Jonathan was able to um, bring together and sometimes even made financially possible people coming together from all parts of the United States to look at this project. And uh, I know that the curator from Baltimore came down. Yes, and, uh, Dr. Isaac King Yes, Hammond. yes, and yes, yes. a key person in the study of art uh, presently, and others uh, from, yeah. from all over Jessica the country. Jessica Harris yes. was there. Uh, the great staff at Middleton Place was there. They held one of the events. Actually, we had our luncheon there, which was mm-hmm. a kind of a coming to Jesus glory moment on a plantation talking about rice and enslaved people. And they finally have gotten a rice crop at Middleton Place using Carolina gold. Yes. The, the, yes. the 18th century yes. rice yes. seed. Yes, yes. So, Middleton, uh, I met. Mr. Duell through Mr. Adler, and Mr. Adler was in Savannah, Georgia when I was working with Mr. W.W. Law. And for me, it was a grand opportunity of having some dialogue with people. I mean, it's, it's, it's so difficult to have conversations about history when so many people are a little uncomfortable, angry, or whatever. And I thought to use rice as a way of having some discussions. And I use the acronym R for race, I for ingenuity, C for culture, and E for economy. And it was a way of uh, starting some dialogue discussions in a safe place where people can speak their feelings and then to have the academics. And And the wonderful part about that whole project is that the academicians left learning so much more because of the collectiveness of people that could talk about the project of rice. And of course, we use uh, Alice's work in that and, and a part of the descriptional piece. And, uh, you know, we, we, we just cannot have conversations about anything in the South unless we talk about each other and, and, and the contributions of Europe, West Africa. Um, native, Asia. I mean, we have to talk about everybody. How we worship, what we eat, how we speak, how we dance, how we sing. As Charles Jarner would say, it has been a shared tradition for more than 350 years in South Carolina. And that should that should constitute constitute a family, shouldn't it? Yes. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. I hate to to bring our conversation to a close, but. Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. So, uh, Dwight, any last words you'd like to leave with our listeners before we sign off? I just would like to thank you for having us here today and uh, to also thank everyone who's been involved. Uh, my, my name is on the book with uh, Ann Tinker and Caroline Palmer, but really Jonathan's name should be on the book. Tracy's name should be on the book. Charles Duell's name should be on the book. Martha Severin should be... Sp- Splayed across it, there are so many people. Dwight, I understand, but you're the person who put it all together. So you need to take your own bow, okay? Well, thank you. That's right. Take right. your bow. Jonathan. And what I would like to say is that we are continuing Alice. Uh, there, there are several. You can go and see her work at the Gibbs Museum. Uh, I'm sure it's at the 
College of Charleston. It's out at Middleton Place. It's at a new uh, bed and breakfast, 20 South Battery. He just bought a collection of, I think, maybe eight or ten Alice. Hmm. And next, I'm hoping that we... You know, in order to remember an artist, you also have to see the artist in 3D and dimensionally speaking. So I think that the next chapter for Alice would have to be a play. Okay. Well, Dwight McInvale and Jonathan Green, I want to thank you both for being with us today on The Journey. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. Alice Ravenel U.G. Smith was an incredible artist, not just in the Charleston Renaissance, the time between World War I and World War II, but even today, her work is influencing new artists. As Jonathan Green pointed out, she was an influence on him, particularly her depiction of persons of color. And Dwight McInvale, in producing this impressive book, has brought to light material, particularly photographs and documents never before seen by historians. The story of Alice Ravenel U.G. Smith and her work is an important part of South Carolina history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.